Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. Today I have a very special treat for you. I met a new colleague and friend today named Carrie Heater, H-E-E-T-E-R, Carrie with a C. And I read her book, which is called An Inside Look at Meditation, Experiences for Healing, Support, and Transformation new book that is out. And I have to say, meeting her and talking to her for an hour, I'm left feeling like I was in the presence of a really remarkable human being. Of course, each and every one of us on the planet has value and we bring special gifts. And there are some people that their unique gifts are just different you know, that they're not as common. So Carrie has been an author of over 100 books and articles, a research scientist. She has created all sorts of interactive gaming experiences. She's been a professor that teaches students learning how to become game makers, technology, kind of gaming. She has created all sorts of virtual reality type games and experiences for people. And she has even developed what's called patient empowered software. To me, that is unique. Someone that is so interested in yoga and meditation and all of the things that I just listed and sees the connections between the two. So I was just kind of left in a little bit of a state of awe after talking to her. And I feel like I've gotten to experience a really special person on the earth. And I don't know, I feel good. I feel happy to give you a peek into this world of virtual reality, experiential ways of knowing who we are, of self-discovery, of transforming ourselves from a place of suffering to a place of who knows where through Vini Yoga meditation practices. I guess that's the other thing I want to say is that the type of meditation that we have learned from our teachers at the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandram, and now we are giving to our students through this lineage or tradition is very unique. It's not quiet mind meditation. It's not mindfulness meditation. It's a healing journey of self-discovery. And you've probably heard me talk the last few weeks about these vasanas, these kind of emotional imprints that kind of get stuck to us different times of our lives. Those emotional imprints that we are unconscious of most of the time, oftentimes come up during the type of experiential meditation that Carrie and I are speaking of today. And it's safe enough for those feelings and sensations to come to the surface to be digested and to take what learning we can from those and what self-discovery we can and then to let go of that which is no longer serving us. So I think if I were to kind of give a big umbrella term, what we're doing is we're digesting the experiences of our lives through meditation that we have not previously been able to digest. And that it's through these 
Vini yoga meditation practices that Carrie talks about in her new book, An Inside Look at Meditation. It's through those meditative experiences that we come to know ourselves deeply. And the end game is that we can be of service to the world, showing up as our full self in our full power, our internal power, and let our unique essence shine. And I think that's what inspired me so much about Carrie is I can see that in her. I can see that she has gone deeply inward to determine who she is, and she's willing to let us see the beauty of who she is. I think so many people are unable, unwilling, or have never been taught how to do that. And I think one of the ways you can do that is through what we're calling Vini Yoga, healing and transformative meditations. So I introduce you to Carrie. This is a really unique interview, and I I really think you will enjoy it. And it gives us all so much food for thought. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler, and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well, how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast, and we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. All right, let's get into today's episode. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you for being here today with me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. You are a very fascinating woman to me. I've only known of you probably a month or two now when a a mutual friend, Natalie, told me about you. And the topic of the day today is meditation that can create an experience for self-transformation, for self-discovery, and potentially even healing. But I want to back up because your experience as a professor at Michigan State University for 27 years in media and information, creating all sorts of interactive experiences such as gaming kind of informs this idea of an interactive meditation for self-discovery and transformation and potentially healing. So can you talk a little bit about your experience in writing, I guess, gaming code? Is that what you're doing and, and how that connects to meditation? So I have a long academic career, all of which focuses on designing experiences. And so I started out in the early ages of interactivity. And one of the goals of an interactive experience is co-creation with the user being part of creating the experience. So I've created interactive media. I've done virtual reality. I've created games. If the player helps create the play experience, that's like the best you can possibly do. So when I encountered meditation late in life, I was shocked because I, the person doing the meditating, was co-creating the experience with what was being guided in the kind of meditation that you and I do. In Vini Yoga, we do meditations that are open enough that each person has their own experience. 
So the designer, the person who creates the meditation, is doing the preparation to get the mind and body ready and focused, and doing just enough prompts to open up a window into an experience, and each person has their own. And so for me, there was, oh my goodness, I've been working so hard with technology, and all I need is eyes closed, have, you know, using the mind and body, and I can create these experiences that people have that are unique to them. It's like so cool. And why is it so important to have that co-creative experience instead of say kind of a more didactic approach where it's just coming one way, you're being told to visualize this and then visualize that and a lot more words instead of here's a prompt and here's a little space for you to explore and another prompt and a little more space. Why not just have someone walk you through a visualization step-by-step? Well, as a game designer, you totally want the players to take over and to do things in the game that you never imagined that they would do. And that's like the ultimate experience. And a lot of games, at least in the early days, didn't do that. They're just sort of this limited, you do this and you can only do within that. But when the players take over, that's like, how could I make this? As an educational technology designer, I I created a tool that let me learn sign language. It's like, how did that happen? I made the tool that I'm now using to learn, right? And so there's nothing better as a designer than the users owning the content, making content, doing it. But that's getting away from what we're really talking about, which is meditation. And so meditation is a tool of, as you said, self-discovery and transformation. And we're not creating robots. Everybody is in a different place in life and in their mind and in their being. So the transformation that's appropriate for me this morning is not the same as, as what you need or want or will do and things like that. And so, of course, if it's going to be the most impactful, the most important, it's going to be totally customized. That's our main Vini yoga is we adapt to the person or we create it so that what shows up for them comes from them. And that's just amazing. Well, I think we need to unpack that a little bit because most of the students that I teach that are coming to this kind of Krishnamacharya slash Deskachar tradition, they have a very different meaning in their mind when we first begin to talk meditation. They think of kind of Vipassana meditation where you might be following your breath and feeling your body sensations or Zen meditation where your mind might be going blank or mindfulness meditation where you're taking a raisin and just being in the present moment and exploring that raisin. So that's kind of become the standard, at least from what I know in the US of what is meditation. And I know that when we start to introduce our students to this idea of an interactive experience that is tailored for you based on your constitution, your stage of life, your needs at the moment, your fatigue, or how much nourishment you've had or not have, your state of mind. When we individualize a meditation experience for someone, that is not only mind-blowing, but also for a lot of people, it's a little strange. They don't get it. They have a lot of questions about, what is this? It is a meditation. It isn't guided imagery, but I'm not sure what this is. Have you talked to anyone who's had kind of that response at first? I have talked to so many people who have had that response that I wrote a book to answer that question. Because meditation is a word that's out there that means many things to many people, almost all of those quite different than what you and I do and what we practice. 
And so friends knew I was doing meditation. They go, oh, that's cool. My grandmother does headspace. I really want to convey the amazing world of what's possible, what we do and why. And I encounter that all the time. And I think we really need to, yeah, we need to clarify because this is so different than what is normally thought of as meditation. Not that there's not similarities, there's overlap, but there's a very unique thread to what we do with deep rationale, historic, ancient rationale. So the book that Carrie has written is called An Inside Look at Meditation, Experiences for Healing, Support, and Transformation. And in this book, there are stories, there is science, and there is yoga. And I'm so grateful to you, Carrie, for number one, gifting me with a hard copy, which can be purchased at amazon.com for about $22. And I would highly recommend that because it's worth it. But if someone wants a free PDF copy, they could go to www.yogamindtools.com. Great. So was this a fun project for you? Because I noticed that you have authored over a hundred books and articles. And I noticed also that you had said that this idea of creating experiential meditations is like a fun thing for you. So was this book part of that play? So play has always been important to my life and I've always done things that I love, but this book was the most fun and most important thing I have done so far. And so this is what I chose to do in my consulting year. My final year with Michigan State University was I said I would write a book and I had to and got to discover an entirely new way of writing because I wasn't writing it for academic peer review. I was writing it for people to understand meditation. And so I got to escape the boundaries that I realized were so uncomfortable of having a thousand citations. And I explained things in my own language and I gave examples and I made it filled with 38 big ideas. So this was a joy and act of love and, and my most recent big step and my most important thing I've done so far in life, I think. Wow. I mean, I am a very visual person and I'm going to show some of the book for those of you on YouTube. Almost every page has colorful illustrations and graphs and charts. That's one thing I loved about the book was how visual it is. To me, that made it so digestible. And and it wasn't just words and words and more words. I could really grasp these concepts because they were laid out so visually. So thank so, you. Thank, I also include many, many stories. I interviewed seven experts who have done a lot of this meditation. And I also included quotes from many of my students. So I differentiate between one-time and long-time meditations. And so a one-time meditation is often done in a group where you're guided. And although each person has their own experience, they're hearing the same guidance. And you do it once or a couple of times, but it's not meant to be your regular practice for a long period of time. And then there are long-time meditations that your mentor or your yoga therapist may give you to do that you repeat over and over again for months, weeks, or even years. And we don't usually talk about what happens in our long-term meditations because you're close friends, you see each other often and you don't go, oh, how's that star meditation going? There's not something new to report every week or something like that. But so to interview these people and have them talk about, well, I meditated on the moon for two years and here's what happened to me. So it was fascinating to hear. Before I did the interviews, I thought I was just weird, but then I learned from interviewing people, no, other people love it like I do and their experiences are 
different from mine, but the same in terms of the impact and progression and explorations and stuff like that. And so I loved hearing their stories. And I think there's a total of 89 stories in the book. Let's break this down for our listeners, because some of them may have never experienced these kind of experiential, transformative, meditative experiences, a one-off with a group or having one object of meditation for a long period of time. And I too have meditated on the moon for about 18 months. So we'll have to talk about that. But, you know, I was describing to our students last night in class that I think this original idea of choosing an object of meditation, exploring the qualities of that object, possibly even becoming imbued with the qualities of that object of meditation, and then maybe even at some point becoming absorbed and almost losing your sense of personal identity throughout many months or years of meditation on that particular object. As you alluded to, it comes from very ancient roots in Indian philosophy, and that's all the different deities, all the different facets of the natural world that people back in the Vedic times used to meditate on the sun or the moon or a river. This has really, really deep roots, maybe 5,000, 10,000 years old in some cases that they would choose an object of meditation to engage with over a period of time. And yet that seems very strange to people today, like something they've never, ever heard of. And so what's fascinating to me is Now you, the interactive experiential gaming professor, are picking that up and showing it to us in a very modern way. I'm kind of blown away by the timelessness of that. That is incredible, isn't it? That it goes back to that. And and the stages that Patanjali talks about, talks about preparation sort of in a different place, but then there's the one-mindedness, the connection where you're concentrating and focusing on the object and there's effort. And then dharma, and then there becomes this two-way flow where you're sufficiently connected, you can get let go a little bit, and you're still connected. It's a two-way flow. You're not in control of what happens. You're observing, you're experiencing, and you're going with it. And it takes you places that the rest of your human system is sort of contributing to what's going on for you in life, how you're feeling, and also what positive and negative feelings and stuff. All that is feeding into where it's taking you, and you're on this journey. And that happens not just during a single meditation, but you go back to it and it will take you to the same place or different places. It progresses. Chase and I talk about Harry Potter-like port keys. You kind of find the port key for your moon meditation of how you get into it after doing it for a while. It's like, okay, if I focus on this, then I'm into the two-way flow pretty quickly. But then what happens from there, you don't know. And for me, that's like so interesting. I love going into not knowing what's going to happen. And so the book is full of people's stories about places these kinds of things have taken them. So I can imagine for someone who's never experienced this Harry Potter experience where you get into the portal (laughs) and get to explore, someone might think, what is the benefit of that? And how could that possibly help us transform ourselves or find healing? That's a strange phenomenon. Do you have an answer to that? Oh, many answers. But let's sort of back way off into something more tangible. So I taught a meditation I called safe as a giant clam. I had some friends who were going on a trip that they were worried about, and I kind of wanted to give them some safety to take with them. Somehow the metaphor of a giant clam came to me. So clams under the ocean are wide open. 
But when they sense some movement above, they can close and inside they're safe and then they can open again. And so I talked about the clam and we were doing arm movements. I happened to have some closing in them. And as the meditation progressed, it was sort of, what is the feeling of safety? And so the giant clam idea was a port key into the feeling of safety. And we think about it as sort of like marinating in a quality of feeling safe. And maybe then over time, going into it again or spending more time or going deeper into what does safe feel like. That's an example where you can sort of see how that might be in some way helpful to be building that sense. There has to be a seed. You have to be able to access safety. So if someone has no sense of safety, we would give them something else at first. But if it's a little bit there, we could be building that. That's one sort of off-the-cuff example. And then just to follow that thread, once you maybe can feel that interoceptive awareness of what does it feel like to be safe, another day you might explore, well, how is that different than when I don't feel safe? And what are some times in my life I have felt safe or unsafe? And what's happening in my life right now that I'm feeling safe or unsafe with? Like when you say the the portal in, and you might do this for weeks or months or longer, the whole meditation, as you said, you don't know where the flow will take you, but there's a lot of self-reflection, self-awareness, maybe even self-actualization that can happen through that 20 or 30 minute experiential meditation on a regular basis. Would you agree? Definitely. Because that's something you're thinking about because you're going into it regularly. You're more aware in life also about, oh, do I feel safe now? Maybe, maybe not. And sometimes you're just going to maybe even visualize doing a clam arm, arm movement that will connect you again to that feeling. And other times you'll be noticing. We're sort of moving into the self-discovery and transformation in addition to, I mean, we, we kind of talk about there is the increasing equality in ourselves, but there's also learning about ourselves. I don't know a lot of other people who find it as fun as I do. When I discover something devastating about myself, it's like, oh, that is so cool. I've got so many experiences going. So let me give you an example. I taught a meditation about hope this morning. That sounds lovely. And so we started out very casually about allow to come to mind a time recently when you had an experience of feeling hope. Something as simple as I hope I'm on time or I hope that they have chocolate mint chip ice cream, something casual like that. Allow an experience like that to show up. And let me highlight that this is where I'm not telling you, imagine you're going to be on time. I'm letting your experience of recently feeling a little bit of hope to arise, right? So everybody has... That's the co-creation, right? Yeah, everybody has their own thing that they're starting from, to even, even at the very outset. And then we do some moving and breathing that's bringing you to more sense of calm. And then I say, return to that hope and go deeper. I'll tell you what they shared afterwards about those. So one of them was saying, well... I notice that when I'm hoping for something, at the same time, telling myself, don't let your hopes get up. And I'm dampening my hope because I don't want to be disappointed. And another person said, I notice when I feel hopeful, there's some anxiety and some hope around it and some things like that. So they're like, oh, well, those are interesting things about hope and stuff like that. And, and the one who was feeling like they were holding back their hope, they said, I'm going to do that. There's some sort of resolution. And the meditation went on with more calming and things like that. I said, invite a symbol of something that you can associate with feeling hopeful 
to arise for you, something personal, maybe an object or an image, whatever shows up for you, what might be something that you can connect with the feeling of hopeful. And one of the participants said, well, my grandmother initially showed up and she had such hopes for me. And I just knew she always had hopes for me. And then as we went deeper with the symbol, I thought of all my friends who are grandparents now and their hope for their grandchildren. That was his like absolutely gorgeous symbol of connecting to hope. But each person had their own experience related to hope, resolution of how to deal. And this was just one 25-minute experience in the morning. And how powerful that after everyone has their individual exploration, self-discovery and experience that I think another tool that you were using was the Sangha or the community to be heard and be seen. And anyone who wants to share that profound experience, like my grandmother or grandfather had hope for me and all the grandmothers and grandfathers on earth have hope for their, like that's profound. That'll stick with you. Exactly. We feel like we all had each other's meditations. Mm. And, and, And as a meditation teacher, it's so important to me to hear about people's experiences because how do I learn how to continue to teach them? And why do I even want to if I don't know what's happening? So I love that. As a person experiencing meditation, I go to Yogawell Chase's Wednesday morning meditations. So yesterday's, after a very long preparation, so long that I had forgotten there was going to be a meditation object, it was a beautiful focused thing. He said to us, allow to come to mind something that you do almost automatically that you almost wish you didn't like an impulse a lack of control kind of a thing since it was sort of a topical for me of oh i noticed that i sort of flood myself with bad feeling chemicals when i do something that i feel kind of foolish about having done and i just kind of like pour those on just this bad feeling I don't do a lot of talking to myself. It's just like, <laughs> and but it's equally destructive. So that's what I'm noticing that I do. And I'm like, you know, happy. He's like, oh, that's such an interesting observation, right? Even though I'm like noticing and seeing, yes, I do that to myself. And yes, that's not very good. And, and oh, maybe I could pour some other kind of gold elixir into my system instead of these bad feeling chemicals. And then he said, now notice your identity when you do that thing. And I realized that I was a parent of an infant yelling that an infant was bad. And I was like, well, why would I be doing that to myself now? So, so much food for thought. Again, this was from a half hour meditation. To me, that's fun. It's like, oh my gosh, I learned so much just then. I mean, I've been having this type of meditation for many, many years now, and I'm in agreement with you. It's so profound, the things that we learn about ourselves. We had a module last week and I was doing a meditation on lotus flower and what types of things might nourish that lotus flower. And of course, people are having their individual experience and some are thinking sunshine, some are thinking the the mud and muck from underneath, love. There's many things that might nourish that lotus flower. And then I brought them to saying, and what are the things that nourish you? So many people said that that jump was too big. They couldn't think of anything that nourished themselves. But that kind of juxtaposition was super interesting that they could come up with things to nourish the flower so easily, but suddenly when they were going to nourish themselves, boom, couldn't think of anything. So I'm just giving this as an example, similar to you, to help our listeners understand what we 
mean when we say vini yoga type meditation and that there are these roots into the ancient Indian philosophies and that this is a way people have been meditating for thousands of years, but somehow in the U.S., more kind of quiet mind or watch your mind meditations have become so popular. I want to see this kind of interactive meditation become popular. And I think for especially Gen Z and Gen Alpha, they're so into technology and interactive experiences. I think they would really love this type of meditation. Do you think that's true? I hope so. This stuff is so interesting. And when I'm able to teach it to people, I taught a childhood play uh, meditation to my game design students. We want to hear about that one. That sounds fascinating. Well, you know, these are game design students and they're college students. And they are devoting their entire undergraduate degree to learning game design. And they hope to design games as a career, but they're college old right now. And so it seemed like it would be helpful to do a meditation where they went back into something you love to play as a child mm. and remembering the experience. What was it that you loved to play and go back into that? How did it feel? And returning to that a couple of different times. And what that does is, is it grounds you really in what's behind what got you into this path now. And as you're designing games, you sort of bring a little of that back in, right? As you get connected with what you love to play as a child. Oh, I remember the smell of the rug in the basement where we were playing. These days, many of them, what they love to play was a video game. My age people, those didn't exist at the time. There were other kinds of play. But the essence of what play meant and you know, what it was you loved about it, whether it was competition or being with somebody or a certain feeling that you had, what was the feeling of play that you loved. I mean, those are good to reconnect with because there's so much actual work involved in a game and making it right mm -hmm. that you forget the roots of the feeling that you want the players to have or what you bring to it. I think that's such a beautiful example of how these interactive meditations are fun. They are interesting. They do give us profound insights potentially or change our perception. And that goes right back into life. That as you're saying, that meditation could help these gaming students maintain the essence of why they want to do what they want to do and the experiential nature of the person who's playing the game. But all of the things we've talked about today, the clamshell, take that back into life and create a more safe life for yourself, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and maybe physically, or in the instance of the lotus flower. Okay. You couldn't think of one thing that was nourishing to you. Well, okay. Let's go back and start to build a sustainable lifestyle that will become nourishing to you. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts about this type of meditation is how it informs health behavior change, sustainable living, so many shifts that we could make in our real life. I totally agree. And a failed meditation tends to be the one you learn the most from. And I really wouldn't call there was nothing to nourish me in the Lotus a failed meditation, but people perhaps felt like it was. But as you say, incredibly informative, right? It's like, oh, that's super, super interesting. To go back to what you were asking is, do you think people are open to this kind of meditation? I would love to know that. It's so hard to get people 
to slow the pace down enough to do this. And I've made a lot of 10 minute meditations for that reason, right? Just 10 minutes. And we can accomplish a lot in 10 minutes, but I don't know how we bring it to the world. I would love to. I want to share the joy that I take in it, right? I think your book is a good start. And I, <laughs> you know, like anything, we have to give people an experience. The first time someone has a profound experience in one of these things, they're like, oh, I want more of that. So how do we get it out there? It sounds like you're maybe having classes. I know I'm creating a 12-day free meditation challenge where people can sign up and then get for 12 days a different one delivered to them, which I can put in the show notes. Those kinds of things, person by person by person over time, I hope going to bring it to the world. And it, you know, we just put our little two drops in the bucket and see how fast it fills. And I know there's a lot of other Vinny Yoga people out there doing this also. That's great. That's really good. I love bringing our meditation to people with zero meditation experience and giving them an experience. I made a, a therapy dog meditation for Michigan State students finals week. They bring therapy awesome. dogs. I love your examples. These are so fun. <laughs> yeah, they bring therapy dogs to the library finals week. Mm. But there's COVID and people are remote and not everybody can get to the library and that kind of thing. And so I made a, a call to mind a therapy being, maybe it's a therapy dog or a therapy cat or rabbit or any kind of therapy being. Therapy dogs love to give comfort and affection. So invite to come to mind what would be the ideal therapy being for you right now. Just be connecting with it. And then again, movement and breathing to help focus the mind and then just being with the therapy dog. Super simple, 10 minute comfort and affection to help you get through finals week. You know, what has just occurred to me is that the perception people have of the word meditation is almost a barrier because they come in with this expectation about what meditation is going to be. And when these experiential transformative experiences of self-discovery don't match up to their idea of quiet mind meditation, somehow there's this weird disconnect. And I think we see this in Western yoga studios too, that People are coming expecting kind of a workout with a bunch of postures and you're going to sweat. And, and then when you give them a more subtle breath-based experience, sometimes it's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is almost like Tai Chi. What is this? So how can we set people up for proper expectations? And I think that's what I love about how you've defined this. It really is an interactive experience. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because apparently you've thought a lot about this. <laughs> well, it's really good for you. Research shows, and you're very familiar with the research as well, that there are all sorts of benefits to the mind and body, almost regardless of the meditation object of having this kind of focusing, being coming aware of how your body is feeling, how you're doing, what your mind is up to, and going into this and doing it. Things like interceptive awareness, self-regulation, emotional awareness. And I don't think that our society today places much attention there. And I don't think it's necessarily comfortable to do for the first time. It's like, uh, yeah, that was super powerful. And I was getting in touch with this human system, but I don't know, maybe I'm not going to do that anymore. So somehow, I mean, and people say to me, oh, I know I should meditate more. So they know they should. Maybe just having it really available and accessible, you mm. know, and, and bringing it to places that don't usually expect it or something like that to have it available. So I think that's our mission, right? <laughs> it is. And I'm, I'm 
I don't know, but I would think this could even be useful to virtual reality programmers that would take these ancient ideas about how to meditate and place it in a virtual reality experience. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's an interesting thought. Now that moves it outside of us, which is, I think we kind of want it to be self-generated and internal experience. Yeah. I've designed some virtual reality meditations because I used to work in that. And that's fun. It's mind boggling for me because it's like, well, but I don't need any of that technology anymore. But on the other hand, I did with Marcel, Marcel Alberton, my mentor, we did a virtual beach meditation in a, a virtual reality beach scene and the waves are coming up on the shore and that kind of thing. And so we spent time in the virtual beach planning the meditation. And so we would cue them, you know, bring your attention to the waves. We actually had decided to have them doing arm movements, even though you can't see your hands. In virtual reality, it's like you get over that in a minute or two. And one of the things we did that cracked me up, but that I loved is we got them in and we had them close their eyes. <laughs> it's like, oh, you've done all this virtual reality gear. And now we say, close your eyes, not for the whole time, but that way we're having, you know, inside and then in the world and then that kind of thing. As a designer, it's a blast designing. And then we also designed a Yokohomo Japanese tea garden meditation. And, you know, I'd love to do more of that building on what's there and, and that. So we ran the beach meditation with people at VR and game conference. And they said, it's like going to the beach only perfect because the sand doesn't blow in your face and the clouds don't come over and things like that. We can use those. And, and there are some companies that are doing that. But I like what you said that you're at the point now where you don't need technology. You have everything within your own mind and heart to create these experiences. So let's pull that thread that you just mentioned. What if you're in an experience and it goes sideways. Like I remember one student um, was in a meditation that one of our faculty was giving. And I think the faculty maybe had chosen the concept of love. And this student had a complete breakdown because from their perception, they'd never truly been loved. So although that's profound and powerful, it's not exactly a feel-good experience. I think they cried for a couple of days and eventually had some understanding and a self-discovery and it actually changed the trajectory of their life in a positive direction. But at the time, it actually didn't feel very good, I don't think. So I've been raised to believe that you want to have a mentor when you're on this kind of a journey. Mm -hmm. um, and the mentor isn't necessarily at all the meditations that you're doing or that kind of thing, but they're a person you can turn to whenever an experience like that happens, if you want to talk about it, sort through it, or do that kind of thing. And the classes that I teach where people aren't really there for on the yoga journey or anything like that, we have conversations after each meditation. And when someone expresses something that I could tell was fairly disturbing, I will follow up with them immediately and send them email and say, hey, you want to talk or that kind of thing. I think that having support available helps make sense out of something that feels negative. You know, because there's the truth in the moment. The truth in the moment is I've never been loved. And then there's the broader truth. That may be the case, but it's pretty unlikely. So what do we do with that? Right. And I think I love the, the portion of your book where you talked about this idea of having a mentor that's an experienced practitioner that has been meditating themselves in this 
experiential way for many, many years, has seen a lot of students have different types of experiences, knows how to hold and give empathy and support and individualize the practice. You know, we've been talking about these one-off kind of group experiences and yes, we want support before, during, and after, but let's talk a little bit about an individual that comes in, in a certain stage of life, maybe with certain things that are causing them suffering. Tell us about that kind of assessment, first of all, and if you want to call it that and mentorship and, and choosing an appropriate meditation for that student. So that is not a role I play in life, but I would like you to talk about that because it's exactly <laughs> the right moment in this interview to have that conversation be had. Well, I feel passionate about this because we as yoga therapists, that is a huge part of what we're learning to do in the over a thousand hours of training, two and a half to three plus years of training. And I understand psychologists perspective when they say, don't get into the scope of practice of a psychologist. And I honor that. And I say, yes, I'm not a talk therapist. I'm not here to do any of that. But I would also ask for the return that if you haven't really been deeply trained in how to be someone who is creating a meditative experience for self-transformation and for self-discovery, I would ask you not to step on our scope of practice because it takes a long time. I would say most people, when they graduate from a yoga therapy program, even after years of training, they themselves are not ready to guide others yet. They're ready to guide others under supervision, right? But it could take two or three or four years after graduation to really be able to competently help others do this work and the individual assessment and, and creation and follow-up and mentoring around it. So it seems like a long path, but I think because this meditation, the way I see it, it bypasses the prefrontal cortex and all the cognitive gates that keep us safe. And it kind of goes in through the back door into some very unexpected places that you're not protecting. <laughs> I think it's a very important thing to be well-trained. Has that been your experience, Carrie? I think what you're saying is really important. And I think that in meditation, as we get more and more skilled at doing it, our whole self, parts of us, uh, is participating in the meditation. It's a learning curve that joyfully has no end. So mm -hmm. I learn every day about meditation by teaching it and by doing it. And I have been doing it as, as a yoga therapy client, not as a yoga therapist, but with enormous respect. Most of the people I interviewed for the book are yoga therapists. And I think that just understanding what goes on experientially, having enough experiences yourself you know, all the time of realizing, oh, this weird thing or this cool thing happened for me and for other people and for friends to really be comfortable guiding someone because you've had so many experiences and worked with so many people doing it. It's just a gift to be able to offer your clients very much. And you don't ever stop learning. And I want to take it even one step further, having gone through all of these experiences as a student yourself and being held by someone else the way Marcel has held you for over a decade. Tell me a little bit about that relationship, if you're comfortable. Like, What does that mean for you to have someone assess you, write a practice that they feel is going to be helpful to you, 
you have the experience, you go back and have Marcel as a support. Like, how was that for you? Well, I was interested in the mind-body connection. And Marcel was the yoga teacher in a class I had just started going to. And I overheard him talking to another student about starting a mind-body foundation. Mm. Oh, that sounds super interesting. I was a scientist. So I said, can I be part of that foundation? Can I learn about it? And he said, well, you need to learn about it by having the experiences. So you should do yoga therapy with me. And so I was doing yoga therapy, not because I had a thing that I wanted to be changed about myself. At the time, I had no idea that anything might want to be changed. <laughs> now there's endless things. That I, <laughs> no, I'm fine, but tell me about this mind-body connection thingy. And so he designed a practice for me and I did it and I felt completely different. It's like, oh, I've done it every day since then. It's been 11 years of different practices. And so he was wise enough to work with me through my interest. And so he would endlessly explain why this, why that, and let me read all this stuff about Vinny Yoga. And we didn't even do meditation objects for the first year. I was just focusing on the state of my system. Mm, homeostasis. Um, being aware of how I felt. I have multiple sclerosis, and so learning to be aware of the state after and during stages in the practice and things like that. Then I did a Wednesday morning meditation with Chase after a year of working with Marcel. I was like, oh my God, I was an eagle. That was so cool. And I talked Marcel into starting a company with me to design meditations. And I quit my job at the university. I went down to halftime and for a year. So I would have time to do all this stuff. And, and I realized, oh, I'm never going to earn a living with this anytime soon. So I went back to full time, but continued working with him on it. And so we just sort of keep learning and working. And the book talks a lot about his mentoring of me and many of my experiences fun, lots of growing. Why don't you share your moon meditation experience and I'll share oh, mine. Good. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that. This is kind of personal. I, don't, I feel well, mine too. Mine a little too. vulnerable here. So this was many years ago. It might have been 20 years ago. And it was one of, the, I think like the first major meditation that I'd gotten. And it was around fertility because I was wanting to have a child. And I was given this meditation, specifically the object of meditation was the different phases of the moon. So I was asked to track that. So I had these calendars back then it was paper and pencil, look in the sky, if I could see the moon and try to figure out what phase it was in. And then the meditation that particular day would be on that particular phase of the moon. And it took me through a series of exploratory exercises. And I did that for a year and a half. And honestly, I had no idea what the heck that could have to do with fertility. Cause when I went to the teacher, I said, I specifically want to work on fertility. And there was some resistance in me, like, what is this about? How come I have to look at these moon faces and do this 45 minute practice every day? And I still wasn't getting pregnant, but so many things changed in me. I became less rigid. I became more flexible. I remember I'd been trying to lose weight for a year and all of a sudden 12 pounds dropped off and all these really interesting things were happening inside of me. And the only thing that had changed was I was doing this meditation every day. And I can say that by the end of the time, the 18 months when we switched to a different object of meditation and kind of started the whole process over again, I think I was kind of a completely different person in terms of my personality. I had changed from being so type A and I'm right. And this is 
the dogmatic, rigid way it has to be. And if you don't fit into my version of reality, then I'm not going to be friends with you. Like I was so rigid. And I think that moon meditation somehow softened me. Let me see that there's many ways to be in the world. And again, it wasn't cognitive. It kind of came in the back door. And I think since that, I've been a more kind, empathetic person that can go with the flow a little more, that can not have to use that kind of rigidity to feel safe in the world is the only way I can describe it. I love that so much. And so one of the things that that is an example of is you weren't sure why you were doing this meditation. Your mentor teacher gave it to you and you did it for 18 months, even though you weren't sure why you were doing it. I was like, what does this have to do with babies? (laughs) Isn't that cool though? For some reason you did it. And that's part of the magic of the relationship, right? It it was that, but it was also that I liked how it made me feel. Yeah. I remember the mantra that went with it. And I really, that mantra gave me this feeling of peace inside. And I, I just really liked it, even though I didn't understand what it had to do with my original request. Again, the art of giving a meditation object that's appropriate for the person at the time. And so I'll give you my moon meditation example. I may have already read it in the book, which is an example of a different kind of experience. And so I loved space exploration. I've done many projects with NASA. I've done games with NASA, astrobiology, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And so Marcel finally let me have a real meditation object instead of just how I was feeling. It's like, he said, how about the moon? I know you like space. It's like, well, yeah, of course. And I was totally bummed out. This is this ice cold, lifeless ball of rock, millions of miles from anything. And I became, I'm not a depressed person at all, but I got totally depressed and lonely and isolated. And I was sobbing after the meditations. I'm personally so disappointed in our moon that it doesn't have life on it. There's no atmosphere. And so I I emailed Marcel describing it. And he just sort of calmly answered, I think the moon meditation has run its course. Stop doing it. And do you have time to talk? You know, it was fine. I got over it quickly. I only did it for like a week or so. My first one is like, oh, crash and burn or something like that. And, you know, I now love meditating on the moon. That's fine. And actually, there's so many different aspects of it. And I think, I don't know, we haven't ever talked about it. I think he was looking for the cooling influence of it to help with MS inflammation. It was just sort of hilarious, but those kinds of things cracked me up. I was glad to stop. It was affecting my personality. It was so strange, you know? I've had some doozies too, (laughs) but that's even interesting, right? Like what about kind of the cold, lonely planet with no life on it that impacted you so deeply? And why did you spontaneously connect to those qualities versus like a moon that is nourishing and the moonbeams coming out that are nourishing the nightshade plants, someone else might pick up on that and really get into just having the moonlight sparkle all over them every day or something. Well, a moonlight meditation is different than a moon meditation. And moonlight is a different kind of delight. And I had done projects about the moon and how complicated it was to get around on it. It was actually sort of set up to be kind of meet me to go there as the scientist. Then I became the moon. But, you know, I mean, the moon is not lonely. The moon revolves around the earth and together they're companions. But that's where I went. You're right. Yeah. Through 
Marcel's experience to understand what was happening that, oh, for whatever reason, the hooks in her mind, due to being this scientist, maybe picked up on qualities that he wasn't expecting. And those particular qualities were not having the intended effect or hoped portal opening for you, if you will. And therefore, he had the wisdom to say, stop doing it now. And when can you talk? Right. But he was also pretty calm about it, right? There was not like, oh, oh my gosh, what's happening? It's like, no, I think it's run its course. You can stop that now and let's meet. And if it had been a disaster, I wasn't like panicked or anything like that. It was just like, this is, this is weird, but you know, it's fine. But if it had been differently upsetting, he would have called immediately or something like that. So it's so nice to have a person who is in relationship with you and cares about you. Oh my God, for, for 11 years, right? I mean, these are so long, these relationships. It's so amazing, right? Absolutely. And I think that long-term relationship is just a whole nother facet in and of itself that is so profound. And I want to say that if one or more of these meditations brought something up that required a psychotherapist, of course, we would get that referral too. Sure. So Carrie, this question just came to mind as I was hearing you talk. And I I know that this book and these ideas have just been fun, profound project for you, but what is the end game of all this? Is it just to play and have fun and experiences or is there some deeper place that this could take us over 11 years? Well, I describe many of us as becoming insight junkies and a love of transformation and a love of becoming. It feels like a progression of becoming more and more of who I want to be and being in the world more and more the way I want to be. My current regular meditation is an exploration of Samukhi Mudra from the Hatha Yoga class where you're closing the ears and eyes and mouth and nose gently and listening to inner sound. And so just developing the art of listening to self, of being open. And I sort of just feel like the project of being me and being in the world and giving my gift to the world is ongoing and is totally happening through and with yoga and meditation. So that's the end game. I'm so touched that that was your answer. And I just want to tell a very brief story about Deskachar that when I first came to this tradition and came to understand the things that we've been talking about today and learned the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, I was like, is this like a self-absorbed, self-centered discovery of who you are and self-analysis? Like, what are we doing here? And I, I had kind of a pushback. I don't know. I, I, I think karma yoga is probably a better route, selfless service to others. But what I've come to understand over these almost 25 years is that it's through the self and getting to know ourselves and be exactly who we are, that we are of service, that your essence as research scientist and an author and an interactive virtual reality person. And that it's through these meditative experiential experiences that you can become the most of who you are to give your gift to the world. Yep. That took me a long time to accept that it's okay to focus on self. And that is why we're here. (laughs) 
<laughs> I wanted to skip that part and just go to the the service part. You know, we are embodied. Right. Right. And we're in this body. We're not, I'm not in your body. You're not in my body. And I think we're also in selfed. Right. So this is what we have to work with and this is what we have to offer. So we nurture and develop those things. And you had mentioned you have MS. I've had autoimmune disease and cancer and all sorts of things, chronic pain. I don't think without these practices that we've been talking about that I could still be working and doing the work that I'm doing. How do you feel about that? Do you feel it has helped you to sustain your vitality and your ability to be in this body and still contribute? So I pushed through brain fog my entire career before I started the yoga. And I thought that was just permanent mm. and I don't have it anymore. The meditations and the practice and, and the learning to listen. I mean, I don't even have to do it consciously. I don't take breaks anymore, but I just don't live in a way that that comes up anymore. And so I'm able to be much more effective and more alive and awake and engaged. Do you have a scientific hypothesis about what has happened that your brain fog is not an issue? I'm just interested. If you don't, that's fine. But I think my solution to it was always to grit my teeth and work no matter what until the thing was done. Actually, when I was writing the book, I completely, absolutely had to avoid pushing. I didn't just push through brain fog. I would push through anything. I was going to make as much of every moment that I have on the planet as I possibly can, no matter what. And I couldn't write this book when I was forcing anything because no one would want to read it. Mm. It had to be coming from a place that wanted to be writing it. And so I'm sort of even more so at that point of if I want it to be what it can be, it's got to come through a not, not pressured. So when I started yoga therapy with Marcel, I was supposed to come in with a goal. In academia, I feel like there's always a gun pointed at my head. Mm-hmm. It has to be done than is possible to get done ever in every single day. So I'd love that to reduce a little bit. And it took several years before I realized I was the one holding the gun. <laughs> like, okay, right. So these series of realizations like that, where you start making different choices in life overall and in day-to-day living. So the big picture and the little picture. So there was no question in my mind when I turned 65 that I was retiring so that I could use all of my time to focus on meditation work. So that was not in doubt. It's obvious. I don't need to do all those other things that academics are supposed to do because I got other stuff that I need to do. Same here, Carrie. I turned 50 a couple of years ago. I didn't even make it to 65. I'm like, (laughs) 50 is the minimum. I'm out. (laughs) Because I just want to do this all day, every day. It needs all of us, right? All All of me and all of you. Last question. Okay. I've heard you mention some companies, some different projects you've been working on. Do you have any idea where you're meandering in the next three to five years now that you're retired from no. Michigan State? No, I don't. Because you're just retiring like this month? No, last year. Last May. Yeah. That's when I retired too, May 9th. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. I've very recently finished the book and it will sit nowhere unless I talk to people and I do things with it. And there's a lot of stuff. I know I love this stuff. I'm still busy all of the time. I love 
science and translating this into things that are meaningful to people. But I don't really know fully what's next. And maybe that's so serendipitous that you kind of put in your time as a professor. Probably you have some small pension and your healthcare taken care of. And now you can be with this work and allow whatever to emerge to just flow. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I feel like if I get myself in a situation where I have all sorts of obligations that I don't want, that it's completely my fault right now. So, so I want to be very, you know, cho- choose wisely in terms of what to do. And it's not like I'm sitting here with endless free time. I've managed to be busy all of the time right now, but I can't believe I have the luxury of being open to saying, I'm going to carefully choose how I spend each minute, but I have general directions of, I know it's going to be in this domain and we shall see. I'm so lucky to even be here. And I'm not sure if I read this in your book. It seems like I did something to the effect of if we start to pack our lives too full, we can always decide like, oh, I'm going to take that out now. And there's this constant reflection of, okay, maybe I'm not feeling joyful doing these projects. Now I can remove those and leave more space. Did I read that in your book? No, but it's a good idea. We should should add another chapter with it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. I just want to say the PDF copy of this book so generously is on www.yogamindtools.com. Is that going to be permanent? It's permanent. Permanent. Okay. I mean, I don't know how permanent I am, but while I'm here, it's there. And then if you want to buy the hard copy, which is so beautifully illustrated with so many colors and charts and graphs and stories and research articles, that is for purchase on Amazon. An inside look at meditation, experiences for healing, support, and transformation. Thank you, Carrie, for being here today. Thank you. And the book is a lovely way to share what we do. If you have friends that don't get it, show them the book. And it's also so interesting to hear other people's experiences. So people in this lineage, I think, will enjoy it. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I am so grateful that Carrie was willing to show up 100% as herself today in her essence. I think it's inspiring for all of us who want to show up in such an authentic way. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into what someone could expect if they started to do this type of vini yoga meditation. And as I said, we're going to be putting out in June, 2023, a 12-day challenge where people can, for free, have a meditation downloaded to them each and every day and basically have some of these kind of experiences that Carrie and I were talking about. So more information on that coming soon. And I want to prep people for what they can expect, because I think when we say meditation, we have this idea of someone sitting on a Zafu cushion with their eyes closed and their hand in a a mudra and sitting with your back straight and you have to have open hips and knees to even sit on the Zafu cushion. And, you know, we have this image of what meditation is, but as Carrie illustrates in her book on page 89, she really shows what types of tools and technologies we can use in order to 
get ourselves to have this experiential or interactive meditative experience. So she lists things like breath, chanting, ritual, mudras, or what we sometimes call niyasam hand gestures. We might use yoga philosophy ideas or concepts. We might use physical yoga asana or postures. We might use shifts in attitudes or behaviors. So this whole idea that meditation is done with your eyes closed, sitting on a cushion quietly, is not what we're talking about. That may be part of it, but there might be two or three postures to, as she said, the clamshell opening and closing with arms overhead. That's how you might use your, your asana. I remember one time I was doing a meditation on Durga and there was a shield that I was being asked to put around me and we were using asana to kind of create that shield. So there might be that, there might be very specific breathing techniques that is intended to kind of dial the mind up and make it more alert or breathing techniques that might kind of dial the mind and the nervous system down to put you into kind of the parasympathetic response. It's not always relaxing. Sometimes we want you to, to really have a little bit more energy. There might be hand gestures where we work with the fingers or the different parts of the body. And maybe we do a chant on the heart or a chant on the belly, or we touch the place between the two eyebrows or the crown of the head. So that kind of brings in maybe some ritualistic aspects. Now, the person has to be open to chanting. If they're not open to chanting, of course, we wouldn't use that. I would say it is a very interactive experience. And then we would introduce a particular object of meditation that we were going to link with, focus on, and then kind of soften and allow that flow experience where each person is going to start having a different experience based on the the neural pathways and the hooks they have in their own mind. As we talked about with Carrie, my moon meditation was very different than her moon meditation, but they were both on the moon. So every person has these unique experiences and then we can come out and we have the mentor relationship, we have the sangha relationship, we have ways to process and digest the experience that we just had. That's an important part of the whole process that you're not just kind of left on your own. Now, that's not to say you couldn't journal about it and and do some personal self-reflection, but that connection or that relationship with another human being to see and hear your experience and, and hold you if needed and provide support and nourishment that's part of the meditative experience. That's not separate. So I just wanted to kind of run through that so that if you decide to take our 12-day challenge, which is coming up, or you decide to take some classes with Carrie or one of the Optimal State teachers, that you don't go into it thinking this is going to be sitting on a cushion or eating a raisin for 30 minutes where you're tasting the raisin and I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. Those are beautiful experiences. But I think, as I was saying to Carrie, it's kind of important to 
set people up with proper expectations about what might happen in this 25 or 30 minute experience so that the resistance is less and they're not having a fight in their own mind about, or you're not having a fight in your own mind about what is this? This isn't like any other meditation I've ever done. This is Vini yoga meditation. So I hope you will look at Carrie's book, whether you decide to get the free digital copy on uh, www.yogamindtools.com or whether you want to join us for our 12-day meditation challenge that we have coming up. Either way would be wonderful. And let's explore, let's have self-discovery and transformation and get to know ourselves deeply and work through the vasanas or the residual emotional imprints that are kind of stuck to us, causing unconscious actions and thoughts and words and and take that so that we can be of service to the world in our very own unique way. All right. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.